Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, I'm Suzanne Stubiel. And I'm Ian Cron. And we're so glad that you're listening today. Good morning, friends. Good morning, Suze. How are you? I'm good. Although, you know, I had one of those mornings this morning. Kind of, You know one of those mornings where just like everything's just not going great? Yeah? Yeah, kind of discombobulated. Yeah, I, you know, I'm in a hotel, so I had a good morning. There's very little distraction. All my stuff's where I can find it. <laughs> so I did fine. Oh, man. Oh, well. I just, we, you know, we're staying in this little cottage here in Nashville while our house is rented. And it's just... We're it, it's it, it's we're living in about three hundred square feet, and I, my personality is five hundred square feet. Yes, it is. Oh, well, you don't have to be that agree. You don't have to agree so strongly. Well, I disagree strongly when I do. Cottages aside, we um, we have something really exciting going on with the podcast for for which we are incredibly grateful. Um, as of this show, um, we have about one hundred and seventy five. Thousand downloads, and we've been going for what since July fourth. I think July fourth was our first episode. So I don't know how many months that is, but I feel like we've been showered with both interest and kindness from people. Me too. You know, people are starting to say to me in different locations where we teach or where I am, "Love your podcast, love the podcast," and it it always makes me happy because I say we love it too. We have such a good time. Yeah, and it really it really kind of I think. Uh, reflects the level of interest people have in just trying to understand themselves and, and other people and looking for resources. So you can imagine with 175,000 people listening now, about 13,000 people per week, we got some questions. People are sending in questions. And if you are, please know that we are reading them, but there are so many of them. And we're just trying to, you know, we don't have a staff or anything yet. Lord willing, one day we will. But um it's hard for us to get to them, so we're going to just try and do some fast answers and bring some up, and, and hopefully yours will, will, will come along. So which one are we going to do first, Suze? Um, I'll read the question, and you can answer it first. How about oh, that's that? spooky. Okay. Hi, folks. I'm having some trouble figuring out if I'm a one or a five. Every test I've taken always says you're the mo- you are most likely a one or a five. I was wondering if you might have some resources for me that might aid my discovery. Yeah. Okay, let me just talk about two things on that. First part, about tests. Whether it's a Myers-Briggs type indicator, an Enneagram test, any personality test that relies heavily upon the self-awareness of the person taking it. If you have a low degree of self-awareness, it skews the test. If you're drunk, it skews the test. If it is, a, you know, the test can't figure out if you're lying or uh honest or dishonest, in touch with who you are or not. It doesn't mean that they're not useful at one level because self-report tests exist everywhere. It just means you got to take them with a grain of salt whenever you hear them or whenever you hear it. So all to say, I wouldn't look at an Enneagram test as a, a way to d- have a determination, a final determination of what your number is. There are great resources out there. I got to tell you, we got a great book. And I, I, I say that you know, uh, because I think we worked so hard to have a book that would help people find their number. And that was just the whole thing. That was it. We just want you to find your number. We didn't try to be overly ambitious. Secondly, um, there are some people who've really influenced you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll throw out a couple of names. You throw out a couple of names. Sure. Um, Lynette Shepard. 
Uh, another one, uh, her book, Everyday Enneagram. Um, I would say, you know, the kind of the grand dame of the Enneagram, Helen Palmer's book, The, the Enneagram. Uh, Richard Rohr. Oh, yeah. The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. And uh, we really like uh, a new book out by a woman whose name is... Beatrice Chestnut. She's quite good. Gosh, I love that book. Twenty, Yeah, The Enneagram, 27 Pathways to something. Yeah. It, it's a very big book. It's a big book, but it's a good book. Yeah. But I want to back up and just say, sometimes if you read too much information yeah. before you know your number, it just makes the water a little more cloudy, yeah. which is why we wrote our book the way we did. Mm. I, and that's a that's an honest statement. It's not just a push for our book. Yeah. You know, while we're here with this question, we might talk about ones and fives. So Go I would... Ahead. I would just say a big difference in ones and fives is that ones really like a lot of affection and fives not so much. Say that again. Ones like lots of affection, even though they don't ask for it. I see. Okay. Yeah. And fives not so much because they have such a limited amount of energy. But the other thing is those one voices. Mm, the Very one, different. Yeah. Than what that that stream of negative self-commentary. I call it the inner prosecutor. Yeah. Is so difficult for those uh, those ones, yeah, for sure. So that might be helpful for that one five piece. Yeah. Um, what was our next question? I'm curious how intense trauma or long term stress can alter the personality and what recovery looks like. Is the goal to return back to the self as one originally was, or is the goal to embrace the new personality correlated with the PTSD? Really loving all the guests on your series. Man, there's a lot going on in that question. And we get a lot of questions about trauma. Yeah, we do. You want to take a shot at this first and I'll sure. jump in after? Um, both in my own experience and in years of talking with people about the Enneagram, I would say that I actually don't think trauma changes your Enneagram number. And there's no evidence to suggest that it does. Um, your number is really pretty well honed by the time you're five. And I think what we need to be looking at is the reality that when you experience trauma, you just go deeper in your numbers. So if we looked at the range of healthy, average, and unhealthy, then there's a good chance that trauma would cause you to plummet all the way to the bottom of being unhealthy in your number and in a defensive stance, and then you would just have more of a journey ahead of you to get to a healthy space. You and I, honestly, and, and every human being experiences trauma. I mean, it's just an inevitable uh, uh, you know, part of the human life or the human condition. Uh, I, I, the word I like is thicken, mm -hmm. that the personality, the more trauma there is, the, the more defensive thickening begins to take place. And so, yeah, you know, it's like life is very undemocratic and we don't get to choose how much work we have to do. Um, and some of us, I, I think I have more than some people do, grow up with an alcoholic father and then someone who didn't, you right. know. And so that's my journey. I can't, even though I'm a four who envies everybody else who seems to have an easier life, I can't do that. I got to just say, you know, these are my cards. I got to work with them. Um, but because we've kind of, you, I think you answered that beautifully. I don't want to necessarily touch it. One of the things that people ask us here now all the time, which is exciting, is, where we, are you coming to England? There's a question here. When are you coming to the UK? And there's no one here. When are you coming to LA? I mean, there's like, you know, which is awesome. But I, I want to actually tell people from by way of housekeeping some things about what we do when we're together. First of all, Susan and I would love to come to your city and, and present the Enneagram to you. 
we're doing it more and more. We're getting better and better, I think, at it. We're learning as we go. We're learning to dance together as we go and bring our best gifts to it. But the person, I'm just going to give you a website. I'm going to give you a phone number and just tell you we want to come. And uh, our dear friend, producer, pal, Enneagram 8, Jim Chafee, C-H-A-F-F-E-E. You can, he's actually whispering now to me, pointing his finger and giving directions like a good eight. You can actually go to our website, which is roadbacktoyou.com, and uh, you'll see a link that'll take you right to Jim's uh, Chafee Management, uh, uh, where Jim, Jim books all of our dates. And his phone number is 615-300-9699. And um, he'll get back to you within usually 24 hours. So you'll, uh, we're eager to come and we'd love to uh, be part of it. And also, can I just encourage all of you, because it would be helpful to us, to do us a favor and um, Amazon reviews and podcast reviews. People don't know just how uh, the... The ripple effect of having lots of reviews has on on the orders that companies make and et cetera, et cetera. So, and on iTunes, uh, we just appreciate it. If you have time and you're moved to do it, to leave a review on either Amazon or uh, on iTunes, that would be awesome. We'd like to go north in the summer and south in the winter. Well, I'd like actually the words winter and summer to be verbs in my life. I like to say I'm wintering here or summering there. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a great guest today. Jeff Chu is with us, and good grief have you done a lot of things, Jeff. I'm so excited to talk to you about how far it seems to me that you have stepped outside of your personality to accomplish the things that you've accomplished as a six on the Enneagram. I'm so glad to be with you. It frightens me as a six that you say that, uh, sets up expectations that in my worst case scenario mind, I'm going to fail to meet. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that was really six of you. <laughs> so, so, so to maybe assuage some of your anxieties, you need to know that we are not judgmental people. Both no. of us, our numbers are not either or thinkers. Right. So we're both and people. And um, we... Are, well, we're both pretty hospitable, I think. Yeah, you'll do great. You'll be safe here. Thank you. Ian and I were at Wine Christian. Uh, we did a like the pre-workshop before the big event. And I heard your name frequently as people talked about the fact that you really knocked it out of the park based on mm. what you had to say and the ways that you say things. And so... Um, I'd like for you to tell our audience a little bit about you and a little bit about what you're passionate about, and then we'll build off of that in terms of talking about the Enneagram, but many of them may not know you, and um, the best question we can ask is, what are you passionate about? I'm a storyteller. I'm passionate about stories. My career has been as a journalist, so my work has been to go around the world gathering stories, first for Time Magazine, that's where I started my career, and later for Fast Company. Today, I am a freelance writer, and I'm also in seminary. And perhaps we can get into some of the the steps that have led me here. One of the real gifts of this work has been the chance to ask people questions that would otherwise be rude to ask. Mm. Journalists pry into people's lives, and we have an excuse to do so. And through that process of prying into other people's lives, I think it's helped me to have a little bit more courage 
to ask some questions about my own life, about how I got here, about what God has been doing. Uh, for most of my career, I have not written about myself. That's something that I was raised as a journalist not to do. And over the past four years, as I've explored more about spirituality and faith and sexuality, I've been forced to do that hard work. And that has also been a real gift. Um, you know, I'm a storyteller too, but I was born a storyteller. Were you? I don't know that I was. I think that is partly a function of culture. In my culture, kids don't speak. Kids are seen. Kids are at the dinner table. They greet their elders. But after that, the stories are not yours to tell. I think it was third grade when I was first encouraged to tell a story of my own by a wonderful teacher named Carmen Gonzalez. And part of what we did in third grade was to workshop stories and bind our own books and illustrate them and invent. And I'd never thought like that before. I'd never had that possibility opened up to me before. That was the end of my career as a fiction writer, third grade. But in the years since, I've consistently had strong women who have come into my life to encourage me to ask those questions and to delve into other people's lives and learn through stories. Sure. Um, I, I, um, I find it very interesting that you both ask, ask questions and tell stories because most sixes are really good questioners but they kind of hold back on stories. And it seems like that's what you're saying. Like you've kind of grown into that, kind of grown into moving from asking questions to telling your story and other people's stories. Is that correct? I've definitely grown in it. I remember the one journalism class I ever took, the first assignment I got back was covered with red. Oh. And the professor who was at the time a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and was spending a semester teaching for the first time, she pushed me. She said, you're not being courageous in telling this woman's story. You're holding back. You're not letting your sense of analysis and your skills of analysis shine through. You're not really telling a story. And over time, working with editors, that's really something I've tried to develop. How do I listen well? It's not just about asking a good question, right? It's about listening well so that you can then follow up with another good question and right. follow up with another good question. I think there is a repeated act of hospitality and asking good questions and receiving the answers graciously and empathetically. Yeah. So these uh, wonderful sixes, uh, the loyalists... Um, tell us about your experience with the, with the Enneagram, your, your, uh, your history with it, how it's helped you, how it's uh, perhaps shaped your understanding of yourself. A little under two years ago, I was struggling with a lot of anxiety and a bout of depression. Uh, I'd struggled with depression in the past a, a fair number of times, and a friend of mine over dinner said, have you ever heard of the Enneagram? And I said, no. And she encouraged me to go online and take a test. And after I took the test, I said, okay, what do I do with it now? And she said, well, now you read the descriptions and you look for the one that makes you cringe and want to run away in recognition. 
And when I got to the description of the six, it unlocked something in me. It was such a horrifying aha <laughs> moment. I think for much of my life, I felt very misunderstood mm. as a gay kid in a very heteronormative family, as uh, earlier in my life as an evangelical in very secular settings, uh, as a Chinese kid growing up in a very white and Latin America, Latino school. Um, so to feel so misunderstood for so much of my life and then to see in black and white on website after website and book after book, a vivid description of how my mind works and how my ears are fed. That was both amazing and terrifying at once. Mm. Can you tell me what was terrifying? What was the terrifying dimension of it? Because some people really feel uh, relieved, um, consoled. What, what was it for you that was terrifying? There is a part of me that's always thought, oh, isn't it great to be an enigma, to not be understood? That, I suppose, was my way of owning my misunderstood self. Mm. It's terrifying to be known. It's terrifying at the same time as we want it so badly because to me, what if I am then rejected? Mm. As a six, when I meet someone, uh, especially once they enter my life and enter that place of trust that's so hard to attain, my great fear is losing that. Mm -hmm. So it's terrifying that if I let them see who I really am and what I'm really driven by, uh, they might choose to walk away. Hmm. It's so interesting to me. I want to talk with you about that for a minute because as a two, I had the same fears, but I handled it completely differently. So there was a point where I started introducing myself to people, and I would say, Hi, my name's Suzanne. Um, it's good to meet you. I'm adopted. Um, I, my mother didn't want me. I'm overweight because I was sexually abused. I'm married to an ex-priest, and people got mad because he left the priesthood, but it wasn't really my fault. You know, I would just walk up to people with my hand out and say all that stuff. So if they were going to go away, they would go away right then instead of me living into the potential of a relationship with them and then having people go away from me. So I, I wish we had known one another because I like your approach better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much of it is personality and how much of it is cultural conditioning. Right? Oh, Where do we that's draw good. the lines? Yeah. Where do we draw the lines between what the Enneagram can tell us uh, and how we're shaped in that number and... Uh, how we've been made to conform to certain patterns. Yeah. I, I've thought a lot about my Chinese upbringing, for instance. And as I've been digging into the Enneagram, it makes me ask, are there numbers that uh, my culture, the culture of my upbringing conditions us towards? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. But I do also wonder... Uh, you know, Typical standard American culture, are there ways in which that shapes many people uh, to end up as certain types. I, I would love to know more about that. It's very interesting to me that you are a Chinese gay man in America, but you've been in lots of different cultural situations to interview people and to talk with people. And one of the things I'm kind of dancing around for some future work is a conversation around place. And I certainly don't mean that in a negative way. And it's hard to talk about place because of the history of that word. 
without people hearing it in a negative way. But I'm just so aware that sometimes I walk into a room and I don't feel like there's a place for me, for the whole of me, not a place to sit, but not a, there's no place for me to be, or my language might be, to be known. The theologian Willie Jennings, he writes about land. And that's what popped into my head when you talk about place and feeling that struggle to find place. He writes about how when God created us, uh, we were inextricably tied to the land. One of the Genesis accounts of creation says that Adam was formed from the soil. And yet the way we live now, partly as a result of colonialism and the great abuses that we have suffered, we've been pulled away from the land, the soils from which we come. Native American culture, certain other indigenous cultures have a greater tie to the land. But I wonder if that doesn't have something to do with our sense of displacement. Uh, When I was reading Willie Jennings, I was feeling my Chinese upbringing And the disconnect I now have, even though in Chinese culture, I am taught that my home village is in southern China, and I know the name of that village. But all the knowledge, all the connection, all the context that comes with that name has been lost. And so here I am in in America constantly looking for my quote-unquote place. I, 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 too, am looking for my place because I was adopted. And so I, I'm so aware that I don't feel connected to both my brothers have done uh, extensive family history stuff and genealogy stuff, and they graciously gave me a copy, but it doesn't mean anything to me. It's like my life started here, and I don't know what came before that. So I, too, look for place, and I think there are lots of people who are looking for place when it doesn't have anything to do with the land from which we came or um, uh, gender, or sexual orientation, or I I think sometimes we just don't know where to stand. You feel that as a four? Oh. All the time, right? fours, yeah, for different reasons. Right. Um, The sense of uh, questioning belonging and uh, fitting in and uh, are are really difficult for for me as a four. I wanted to circle back and ask you a little bit about or the uncertainty you have about, you know, number and culture and the interplay between these things. I, one of the things that struck me when we were speaking in uh, Asheville, North Carolina this weekend was, like, if, if the, the Enneagram is not necessarily a, a tool used for um, answering every question about who you are. Right. It, it really, it, I was thrilled this weekend and also to hear you, Jeff, talking about if it just ignites curiosity and wonder and a conversation with yourself about the mystery of who you are, mm-hmm. that you can just sort of contemplate for a long time. I think that that's a success story, you know, like beginning to wonder, gosh, I wonder about who I am and the interplay of personality and culture and gender and sexuality, all these different things. I I think that's just a rich sandbox to be in. I do too. And I think it gives us permission to be uniquely different from one another, which some people seem to need. Mm. Yeah. I think for those of us who come from cultures that are more collectively based, that don't honor self-examination and that uniqueness of identity, 
a tool like the Enneagram can be especially helpful because it gives us a little bit more of a framework and some new vocabulary mm. to understand the ways in which we've been shaped, but also for those of us who are Christians, the ways in which we can understand how God is still remaking us. Mm. Since you're a storyteller, uh, would you pick some story from your life and tell it? Anything that you think might be um, something that we could respond to in relationship to the Enneagram? One of the most formative experiences of my adolescence was my ninth grade year. Uh, it happened in ninth grade. I had a Bible teacher that year. I was attending a Christian school, and we had to take Bible class every semester. Mr. Byers was that young, dynamic teacher who everybody loved. I think most schools have one of those. His wife was this beautiful woman who worked in the school office. They had a two-year-old son named Owen, and she was pregnant with their second child. Mr. Byers was hilarious. I remember one day, one of my classmates asked, Mr. Byers, what is heaven going to be like? And he gets this dreamy look on his face, and he said, uh, heaven is going to be an eternal orgasm. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we're, we're ninth graders in a very conservative Christian school, and there's just this silence in the room. And he, he wakes up from this dream state, and he says, oh, you're not supposed to know what that is. So that gives you a sense of who he was for us. He opened up possibilities, and then one day he disappeared. Oh. oh. And we didn't know what had happened until the principal called a chapel. And we had chapel every Friday, but this was a special chapel. And our principal got up front, and he said uh, that Mr. Byers would not be coming back because he had been caught in a homosexual relationship with another man, which in retrospect, one of my classmates found hilarious because he said, are there other kinds of homosexual relationships? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have the presence of mind to see this with any kind of humor because this was the first time in my life that I felt something had been named that I hadn't had words for before. Mm -hmm. And all I felt was overwhelming fear and I can still feel that fear when I recount the story because I saw what happened to Mr. Byers. I saw that over the subsequent weeks, it was confirmed that he had been cast out of the community, that he was basically dead to us. And I thought, if anybody ever finds out my secret, the same thing will happen to me. Mm -hmm. So interesting. I, our youngest son is gay. And... Um, I, I don't know that I've done very many great things in my life, but I, I have greatly loved my children. And I have, I have suffered beside him so much in the fear he has about being who he is. And I am so thankful that at least now we can talk. I, I feel like I can have a conversation uh, about homosexuality and the LGBTQ and beyond community anywhere I am. And one of my rules for life is if I can't talk about it, I don't want to be there. If I can't name all of my children as they are for who they are, then it's a room I just shouldn't be in. And I, I have so much affection. Like I, 
I'm just affectionate and huggy and touchy anyway, and I can see you, but I can't get to you. So would you just consider yourself hugged really big by me? Because I, um, I now will carry that story in my heart because I do life based on stories. And for a six to already be fearful and to have a defining moment that adds additional fear is overwhelming. I, I would think it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. It, it paralyzed me for years. And there's a toll that ripples out from that because we are relational creatures, right? right? right. So it rippled out to my girlfriends that I had in college when I was trying to convince myself that that was the path that I could take. It rippled out to my relationship with my sister, who when I finally did come out, could not wrap her head around the fact that I had been lying to her all these years, mm -hmm. even after I said to her, but I've also been lying to myself. Sure. It rippled out to all kinds of relationships, especially with my friends who have a deeply conservative faith. And I think that's still playing out in our relationships now as we grow and re-examine our pasts and unpack some of that baggage. The, the costs of the fear and the costs of that oppression are enormous. Hmm. How do you think we keep from moving backwards? I think that it's hard for me to keep from moving backwards, but it I try to maintain the momentum where, yeah, I'll take a step back, but then I'll take three forward. Mm -hmm. I'll use that backward movement and try to spin it for good. You know, as a journalist, my job is to examine story, to examine stuff that's happened in the past that has made us who we are now. So it's necessary for me to look backward all the time. It's an integral part of my work. The danger is to not get stuck in the past, to believe the danger is to believe that your past defines you, right? Mm -hmm. And so my great challenge in my own life, as well as in uh, telling other people's stories when they are gracious enough to allow me in, is to ask the question of how it moves us forward. How do, how do these stories point us to a better version of ourselves, to a kinder version of ourselves, to a more loving version of ourselves? So one of the sort of driving underlying motivations, we would say, for uh, a six is needing to have uh, to believe and to feel that they're secure. Yeah. Uh, their passion, if you will, is, is, uh, is fear. And uh, we would say anxiety, because, which is a more vague, free-floating experience uh, of fear unrelated to a specific present danger, you know, it's just sort of a, a vague mood or atmosphere of anxiety. Um, how have you, how has that played out in your life and how has it been redemptive even? Over the last couple of years, as I've been thinking more about the Enneagram, as I've been thinking about who God has given me the potential to be, I think I've had to learn to differentiate between my fear, which I think is a symptom of something greater, and the syndrome which is, I think, in my life, a lack of faith and a lack of openness to the life of faith. Uh, likewise, for me, the solution, I've had to be very careful about delineating what the solution is, right? So the signal that points me in the direction of the solution is friendship 
and deep friendship. But the real solution is seeing that those friendships don't just point me to humanity, but they point me back to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, having those friendships drive me towards a greater understanding of who made me and who cares for me above all, and finding security in that. Mm. Uh, I think one of my idols in the past has been other people because I've so craved what I see as security in relationship. But that's not going far enough, and that doesn't give me any kind of ultimate uh, gratification. So it's been this constant process of learning to trust people so that I can trust God and seeing how God is using the dearest friends I have in my life to point me back to God, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just allowing me to rest in the alleged security of human relationship. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Oh, boy, does it make sense. Absolutely. That's a very self-aware, mature six answer, because we're always having to remind people that, that the answer to fear is not courage, it's faith. And I think for many sixes, the journey is the realization that that courage is a sort of a self-generated, you know, uh, or in your case, if you're looking for it from other people, um, but faith, which doesn't require actually certainty, you know, it's sort of living, it's being able to live with anxiety or fear or worry, while at the same time relying not on oneself, but on on faith. I'm one of those people that loves the church but wants to break up with the church at the same time. And I'm married to a United Methodist pastor who's a former Catholic priest. And so I've got an ecumenical bent toward things. But one of the things that I would would say is that I think the church has— all the churches that I'm aware of have not taught us to live with mystery. We don't know how to live with the mystery of who we are. We don't know how to live with the mystery of why we're different from one another. I, I, I don't think we know how to live with the mystery of being called to do something outside of ourselves. And I, I wonder if journalism is in some ways both pointing toward mystery and solving mystery at the same time. Is that accurate? I think every good work of journalism starts with curiosity mm-hmm. and a desire to explore mystery. I think where journalism falls short so often, and we've seen that especially recently, is uh, just like church so often, it has tried to tie everything up too neatly mm-hmm. and offer answers that are really much less complex than our reality. Mm. I th- I think where journalism does a good job is when those writers and reporters are open to the fact that life is so incredibly messy and a story or a series of stories can point us towards some of the possible answers, Hmm. but doesn't try to offer all of them because it can't. So we are living in an age of anxiety and we, we probably more at, at, more than at any time in, in that I can remember in the last 25 years, you know, the, the, just the world is humid with it. And uh, we were saying before the show, we were going to try and avoid talking about politics, but certainly the political atmosphere has been so charged. Uh, I, I mean, how are sixes doing it? I mean, we, I ask myself that all the time. Like, there are more sixes, we think, in the world than any other type. How on earth are, do you, I mean... What's your strategy for dealing with living in an age of profound anxiety? 
I don't think we do it particularly well. Just read the headlines and you can see that we're all struggling. Mm. The fact that I am in seminary today, uh, a real turn in my life, an unexpected one that happened not long after I started working with the Enneagram, hints at some of my answers to that question. There has been, over the last couple of years, a realization that I have to be obedient to the mystery in a way that is incredibly scary. One of the great joys of this fall at Princeton Seminary has been working on a farm that the seminary has. It's a new program called the Farminary. And to be out there in the soil uh, working with a couple of the best teachers I have ever experienced has been such a gift. We were on the first day of class working in the compost pile, shoveling compost, turning it over. This brown, dirty, festering pile. And one of the professors says, guys, I want you to look in this pile of dead stuff for signs of life, death, and resurrection. Hmm. Where do you see new life? And I think in asking that question, where do I see new life, that has helped me not necessarily conquer the fear, but live in tension with the fear. And I think that's the best that I can hope for on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that's really wonderful. That is really wonderful. And I I would say that in some ways, I think sixes have have one up on other numbers right now because they're accustomed to dealing with fear and anxiety. Yes. And the rest of us don't have the tools they do because we're... And you're, yeah, and you're pointing to a feature that we really have to mention about sixes, right? Which is worst case scenario thinking. Yeah. Uh, this is a hallmark feature of sixes. They're always rehearsing in their minds and practicing in their minds. What if, what if, uh, what am I going to do if, you know, they're the uh, just nightmare scenarios. And there's, uh, um, you know, constant preparation in, in their minds. Tell us about your experience with worst case scenario thinking uh, as a six. So I fly a lot for my work. (laughs) I don't need the safety demonstration because what I do when I get on the plane is I identify with where the emergency exits are. I (laughs) look at the people around me and decide whether I'm going to go down the aisle or whether I'm going to go over the seats. I look at where I am in the plane. And if I'm really that far from the emergency exit, I think, okay, do I tuck myself into the smallest possible position so that when I'm plummeting (laughs) to the earth, I have a better chance of not being broken apart? Or do I cling to the arms of the armrest? So I I, I repeat this on a uh, regular basis because I think last year I took something like 80-something flights. So when you do this 80-sometimes a year, you get pretty good at it. And that is how I expend an incredibly large amount of emotional and anxious energy. Mm. Good use of my time, maybe not, but it, it passes the flight. <laughs> That's fascinating to me. I, in, in teaching, I have a story I tell about dishwasher danger. Um, about dishwashers catching on fire and everybody running out and buying a new dishwasher. I just want you to know that as of this moment, I have replaced the dishwasher danger story with the Jeff Chew on an airplane story. I, I had an aunt that every time I, I'd say to her stuff like, I'm going to go see the Rolling Stones tonight at Madison Square Garden. First words out of her mouth would be, find the exits. And I would be like, what? And she'd be like, if there's a fire, go to the exit and then yell fire and run out so you don't get trampled to death. 
I mean, and I was like, wow, that's not exactly a and so, exciting answer. You know. Part of what's happening right now is that we use this language all the time and we say, your Enneagram number is determined by how you see, by how you take in information and by how you see. And we, I, I don't think we will ever have a better description of how sixes see the world. Because when I get on an airplane, and I, too, spend a lot of time on airplanes, when I get on an airplane, I'm looking for people that I can build a relationship with so that if my foot's broken in the crash or if some part of me is hurt, this person who I've made into my friend will get me off of a burning airplane. <laughs> That's how my brain works. Okay, and my brain works by saying, uh, I just want, I put my headphones on before I get on the plane, my Bose noise canceling headphones before I get on the plane to prevent someone from talking to me who's sitting next to me. I want to withdraw and kind of, you know, go into my own, you know, kind of, kind of space. And it's, it's, um, you know, my kind of number way of dealing with it. I, I wonder, Jeff, if you could tell, cause you're, you know, you're, you're training in seminary and you're, you're very self-aware, which of course is the, one of the things we want, we hope the Enneagram gives to people. And we hope seminaries give that to people. Yeah. Um, so well, that's a really good question, yeah, actually. No um, so practical tips. I'm a six. I'm a young, I'm an 18-year-old six. I'm a 21-year-old six. And you're like, man, here's some ways to just practically deal with fear and anxiety in the age in which we live. Like, give me practical stuff. Honestly, as a young six, anything practical that I would have heard on a podcast, I wouldn't have listened to. Mm. So I'm very leery of giving people advice about how to walk through their fear. I suppose if there's one thing I can say, um, it is to not run away from the uncertainty. I, I think where I am now as a 39-year-old person who's been through a lot and experienced a lot and in some ways seen more of life than I've ever wanted to see. I would say that the vulnerability and the uncertainty, uh, those are the places where I've found the most life. Those are the places where I found the most love. Those are the places where I found the most freedom. Mm. And if you had told me that 20 years ago, I would not have believed you. So what would you say now then? Like what, what counsel would you, not guidance, let's get rid of the word advice, you know, like what presence or guidance would you offer the world about dealing with fear and anxiety? Give it to me. I'm a four. I'm afraid. You're afraid. We're all afraid. So it's not just sixes. I mean, just maybe just muse on that a little bit. God provides. It sounds like such a platitude and I hate myself even as I'm saying it. But I look over the last two years of my experience as I've been trying to be more open day by day to who I am and who I can be at every step of the way where I've said to God, for instance, my friends are not being good friends to me. I don't have any support. I look back two weeks later or two months later, and it's almost as if God is saying to me, is this enough now? Is mm. this enough now? Mm. I'm going to meet you where you think you need to be met. I'm going to meet you where you think I'm not providing. And I am providing. Mm. And to be able to think both back and ahead at the same time and not worry too much. I'm never going to be totally free of worry. I know that. To be okay with that and to gradually trust God more moment by moment, I think... That's the only counsel I can give as, as weirdly sha shallow as that may sound for someone who's supposed to be a good writer and storyteller. Not shallow. 
Not no, shallow. No, not at all. You know, Richard Rohr is a friend of ours and one of our favorites, and he says either God is in everything or God is in nothing. And so one of my prayers uh, has come to be, all right, God, uh, show me where you are. I know you're in this, but where are you? And what are you trying to teach me? Mm. Yeah, and I think, you know, this uh, idea uh, in the sixes life of am- ambivalence or of um, self-doubting mm-hmm. uh, would be a better way of putting it, and not trusting the inner compass. You know, like trusting their own capacity for making good decisions and not having to check in with lots of people to make sure, you know, when something comes up. Like, So, for example, going to seminary. Should I go to seminary? Because, I mean, you've got this great career as a journalist. I mean, very successful. I'm sure you you must have probably felt a little bit like, gosh, is this the right thing to do? So as a six, can you tell us a little bit about the journey of self-doubting and worrying about whether or not your inner compass can be trusted? So I uh, created a six-person discernment team to help me. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's so good. And these men and women, pastors and theologians, walked with me, uh, some of them for over a year. Uh, We had calls every four to six weeks, and they kept asking me good questions. They did not give me answers. Mm. And I think that was crucial to the growth process. That was crucial to me realizing, at least in that set of decisions, uh, and as I worked through it with my husband as well, that I had the resources that I need. I think God really used them powerfully to force me back to a place where I had to ultimately decide for myself with their help, sure, because we all need help, but I had to make that decision. Mm. They couldn't decide for me whether seminary was the right thing. Right. Of course, there are still moments, even as I'm here, even as I'm struggling with ancient Greek, even as I'm asking, what am I doing with all these, you know, bros who think they know everything about Calvin Oh, oh no! Oh no! Talk about people who who are anxious about certainty. Yeah. <laughs> so of course I, I have these moments where I'm plagued by self doubt, but I I do feel like once again God provided those people who didn't just let me shelter under their care and nurture, but pushed me out a little bit and constantly urged me to to think for myself mm. and feel for myself. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Gosh, it's such a healthy thing, right? Like, yeah. like taking those proactive moves, like saying, okay, this is who I am. It's probably not going to change. Um, so what do I do with my anxiety? I'm going to be proactive and, and I'm going to put a, like a clearness committee, essentially like a Quaker Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, for anybody who's listening who wants to try to discern something in the way that you've just described, you can learn how to do that from Parker Palmer's oh, yeah. work. And Parker Palmer is a self-identified three on the Enneagram, by the way, just for listeners to know. But with his work, you can learn to do that kind of discernment process, which, interestingly enough, um, has an Enneagram piece in it in that for some of us who have been asked to be on clearness committees where you can only ask questions and not give advice, as it turns out, I'm not very good at that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right, yeah. I'm curious to know your husband's number. Does, is that is he interested in the Enneagram or not? yay, nay? Or? So I asked him to take the test after I did. And his top two n- numbers were six and nine. And I said, you have to read the description. I'm pretty sure he's a nine. Mm. He wouldn't read the descriptions because he said, well, the te- test said that I'm a six. And I said, but I don't think you're a six. And he said, this is junk science. <laughs> and I, 
<laughs> he goes around telling people jokingly sure, that. that he's a six because that's what the test said. And I said, but you're not a six. And everybody who knows him says he's not a six. Everybody says he's a nine. And he's like, the test said I'm a six. So it, I don't know that it's been super helpful for our dialogue, but it has been helpful for me in understanding him better mm. and knowing how to fight better, knowing how to have difficult discussions better, and also knowing how to minister to him better mm. in the context of our marriage uh, and walk with him in a faithful way. Mm. You know, there's a great new book out by Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile. The name of it is The Road Back to You. You ought to give him that book. I, I, I think he needs it and kind of wants it. He just doesn't know it yet. Yeah. It's, it's possible. You know, I think his need for stability, right? New yeah. information can challenge that stability sometimes. Yeah. You yeah. tell him that I don't believe in the test at all. And that I think if he'll read our book, he'll know what his number is. And t- just tell him y'all have a better marriage. Tell yeah, him I said. Sure. I that, said that, that was a good advertisement. Yeah, yeah. no. I mean, it really, it's also it, true, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it really. I mean, I, I, it revolutionized your marriage. It revolutionized my marriage and parenting. And uh, you know, we we it, you know, is it perfect? No. It requires you know the enneagram. We say is not the oracle. Didn't come from Harrison Ford in a cave somewhere. You know, in the Middle East. That you know, glowing in the dark. It's uh, really good. Though. It's just it's just yeah. It's it's really really good and. Uh, I wish someone in seminary had taught me, you know, in terms of formation and, and pastoring people about the ding dang enneagram. I went to a years ago a very very conservative seminary, so it was called the pentagram. But but uh, <laughs> you know, I just wish that the, the church had would take advantage of more tools like that one. I think any tool that can point some seminarians toward greater empathy. And an understanding of our human complexity would mm-hmm. be a great thing. Mm-hmm. I, I look at some of my classmates and they just want to find certainty in these ancient writers. And if anything, what these ancient writers point us back towards is God's mystery and mm-hmm. the complexity. And as time goes by, I just wonder whether sometimes, uh, whether we're looking in the wrong places and for the wrong things. Mm-hmm. So anything that points us to deeper relationship, I think, would be especially important to integrate into these old-fashioned curricula. The one thing I want to say while we're on that subject is that when my husband, as a preacher, began to really learn about the Enneagram, it occurred to him that what he needed to say to sixes, uh, probably sixes make up half of every congregation that we've served. And his his thing that he thinks they all need to hear, which I think is so beautiful, is that you need to trust your own experience of God. Nobody else's. You have your own experience of God, and that needs to be what you rely on. And I think that's very helpful to people who are trying to get it right. Mm. But how can pastors say that if they don't necessarily trust their own experiences with God? Exactly. And yeah. my husband does. So he can say it, but not all pastors can. Mm. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Jeff, uh, we, we, we chose to call the sixes the loyalists. Um, we, we, think that, we thought that was a better uh, signifier than the alternatives. But they are sometimes called the devil's advocates. Um, uh, and... That, as you know, can be a, a wonderful thing and uh, a not so wonderful thing. Uh, but the, you know, tell us, do you have an experience of being a devil? How has that served you and how has it hindered you being a devil's advocate? Or has that been a feature of your life as a six? 
There are moments in my journalistic career where being uh, the questioning contrarian, being the person in the room who offers a different view has been very helpful and times when it's been a real difficulty. When your editor, the boss, already has in mind what the story should be, you will find that that devil's advocacy is not welcome. (laughs) I wasn't aware of the Enneagram when I was going through that phase, when I was sitting in editorial meetings arguing for a particular standpoint. I didn't realize what was going on inside of me. I I look back now and I see ways in which Uh, The sixist tendency to advocate for the underdog, for instance, was a real theme in a lot of my uh, journalistic work. It has been. I've wanted to understand the relative positions that we have in power structures, for instance. And my tendency has always been to understand the story of the person who's suffering, uh, the person who has less power rather than the one who has more. Uh, That's not always welcome. Journalism often serves power rather than challenging it, especially when there's profit in play, especially when there's prestige in play, especially when there's neediness on the part of the editor in play. Mm. Uh, there, There have been times where my tendency to be a loyalist has created a kind of ambivalence though, right? Right. It's that struggle between my loyalty and my desire to uh, find some kind of uh, different point of view or different truth. So I haven't really sorted out how to do that well. Um, And there are moments where fear of speaking up leaves me in paralysis. And so I just sit silently. Uh, And now more than ever, we see the dangers of just sitting silently. Mm. We have to wrap up, uh, I think, and it, this is, I don't want to wrap up. No, nor do I. And one of the things I'd like to talk about just before we go is I'd love to be able to visit with you again because I want to have a whole conversation with you about the topic that you have named Cultivating Gracious Conversation mm. on Divisive Issues. Yeah. Because um, that's very timely. So Oof. I hope you'll come spend an hour with us again sometime. I would love that. We would love it, too. Thanks so much, Jeff. We've, we've had a ball. I'm going to write down more questions for you. And I'm, I'm so glad that you've modeled uh, a, you know, a self-aware six on a journey toward more and more completeness and shalom and wholeness in the world. Thank you. And I'd just add that it seems to me that you're very faithful and courageous. Yeah. And you wear courage gently, which is uh, very helpful to the rest of us. It's been an honor to visit with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Peace and good, friend. Peace and good. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram with me, Ian Morgan Cron, and my good friend, Suzanne Stabile. Our producer is Jim Chafee, and our engineer is the inimitable Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Please visit our website, www.theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, a list of our public appearances, and how to book us to come to your city. And you can order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And join us next week when our guest will be Patrick Chappelle. He's an aide on the Enneagram and a great guy and a good friend to both of us. See you then. See you then.